0: Mary Featherstone, AM, is an Australian interior designer and designer of child-friendly play and learning environments. She is known both for her furniture and design collaborations with Grant Featherstone, as well as her work researching and designing educational spaces for children. In 2020, Mary was made a member, AM, in the General Division of the Order of Australia for her significant service to the arts, especially industrial and interior design. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion as I did with the amazing Mary Featherstone. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. Where are you phoning in from?
1: I'm from Melbourne.
0: Lovely. What's Melbourne like at this time of the year? Cold, beautiful? grey. Yeah. Cold. Cold and grey, mm-hmm. lovely. Uh, I had the privilege a number of years ago of doing a masters down in Melbourne, and so it is by far my, uh, I would say, second favourite capital city. I feel like I have to say second because I live in Sydney, but it really is a, um, it, it really is a beautiful city, isn't it? Full of diversity and and amazing buildings and colours and autumn leaves and all of those things, and also very cold. Uh, Mary, quite possibly the most important uh, question for our uh, discussion is: What's your coffee order? Oh,
1: tea.
0: Tea. Yeah, tea? What? What sort of tea? Black tea, white tea.
1: White, very ordinary. Lovely. Um, so it's very ordinary.
0: And my understanding is that you are uh, you were born in England. Do yes. you think that's where the the love of tea uh, originates from? I myself am English as well, and I. I have a oh. cup of Earl Grey next to me. Uh, but uh, do you think that's part of your heritage being English?
1: Probably. Mm.
0: Lovely. <laughs> and, uh, Mary, if, is there a, a book that you have read recently uh, that has caused you to stop and reconsider a few things in your life?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think I've had a dramatic change of mind. I think that if if I think about... And I, I read extensively both in design and in education. Um, I would say the things that really changed my thinking was um, one would be reading a book called <laughs> Childhood and Adolescence. And it's where I started to read, I, this, I read it because I was a new parent in 1970 and I knew absolutely nothing about children. So I thought, you know, I grew up as an only child, and so I started reading. And um, in childhood and adolescence, I read about um, infant development and wow. capabilities of babies even before they're born. They Got can you. three months before they're born, they can distinguish colors when they're born. They can recognize voices when. Isn't that amazing? Right after birth and that stuck with me because i suppose i just thought you know infants were blobs <laughs> that really um galvanized me oh, and mate. the other thing again um not she's not a popular figure anymore but in the 70s margaret mead was um yes. big name yeah. and re- reading um growing up in samoa i mean there's a lot of stories around that book which are hilarious but what it did for me was to say the culture that I'd grown up in was not the beyond all end-all, you know, that there are many, many different cultures and they have very different ways of living, different values. Amazing. And, um, yeah, so both of those, I think, sort of sit on a course.
0: Fantastic. And uh, do you think that uh, those two books have sort of inadvertently inadvertently influence your direction because I know more recently you Absolutely. have focused on a childhood uh, a childhood development specifically around designing Actually,
1: I've done that for 50 years yeah that's been my obsession for 50 I years. love that mm. that's
0: really that's that's really cool and it's funny how those books that you read early on kind of set a trajectory for your uh, for your life it's really Interesting, um, Mary. I, I did just wanted to uh, I, I wanted to start with a uh, with a quote, uh, if you don't mind, and I, I just wanted to ask why it was so meaningful um, to you. And and the quote is um, the essential fundamental of all design is human in use, and that's of course from Grant Featherstone. Why is that a quote that is so important to you? And and what, how has that influenced um, your life?
1: Well, Grant was remarkable. Person, yes um, it's a great privilege to live and work with him for 30 years yes um, he believed that well the essence of, of design is that you start with with people that's what it's about it's not about yeah you know if you want to if it's if you're interested in form then you take up sculpture or painting or ceramics or something if that's you're right. a designer then you're um your obligation is to serve people, really, and um, and that starts with you know how how people like to be in the world, really, and then you you draw on your you know designer's bag of tricks to help them do th- do what they want to do and and hopefully make it pleasurable. Yeah, and it, beautiful. But you know, good design has to be, as I always say, it has to be both. Uh, it has to. Um, work well and look good it's not good design unless it does both.
0: yeah absolutely and um i uh i love that and it really it made me um after i read that quote a number of weeks ago it made me really think about some things that i thought were really well designed and some things that were effortless and also mm-hmm. some things that were poorly designed and when i think of um uh I think of uh, James Dyson and the amazing work that he has done uh, with Dyson and how we, my wife and I have spent way too much money on Dyson projects, uh, Mm. Dyson products, because they both look amazing. And they also have an incredible form. But then there's those things that are poorly designed that are just a little bit annoying to use. Um, And it's design, I think, is one of those things that as I mentioned before, we um, hit record something that I've come to really Appreciate more recently, and um, when I read that quote, it really, it really spoke to me. I think because quite often we start, we don't start with the user in mind, and specifically when we're thinking about schools, we don't, we don't start with what do the students need and these affordances and the ways that students interact with, um, uh, with spaces. I think is so incredibly important. Um, Mary, um, if you could have a dinner party with anybody. Uh, whether uh, currently with us uh, or past. Your family don't count in the headcount, uh, but who would you love to sit down with and share a meal?
1: I'd love to meet John Dewey.
0: Lovely, yeah. He's come up a number of times, yeah.
1: Oh, I think he's... And when you realise that he was really only operating for, I think, about four years um, in close connection with the University of Chicago... And he operated in um, houses that were certainly not fit for purpose. Um, If only he hadn't employed his wife, (laughs) which gave them cause to boot him out, you know, who knows where we'd be today.
0: Yeah. Is there anybody else you'd love to invite to the dinner party or would John be uh, sufficient?
1: Well, it would be. Top of the pops. Loris Malaguzzi, of course, is just fabulous. The, the founding director of the Reggio Educational Project. Yeah. Extraordinary mind. In a very, very wide reaching
0: Lovely. Um, that would, would be quite an amazing dinner party. Pardon? <laughs> Sorry, that would be quite an amazing dinner party. Yes. Um, Mary, just wondering... Um and we talked about just briefly a few things that have shaped um, the direction that your life has taken. But what was your upbringing like, and and, and what are you most uh, grateful for uh, from your family?
1: Well, my upbringing was pretty ordinary in England. My father was a butcher. My mother was an hairdresser originally. Um, so I suppose we were, you know, lower middle class. Um, quite strict I think Um, but I think the thing that I took oh but my parents had very little education and I went to a funny little local school till I was about 10 no nine I left England when I was nine what I got from my childhood was that my parents both loved beautiful things they they had an eye love that um and they took me to some interesting places and the thing that really um, shaped me I think was the spaces that we went to the incredible wow. spaces and I can still remember them even though I must have been very small and so I think this is the thing that's really interested me is i think you might have said it earlier that the things that shape you as a young child yeah if you are supported in that passion it can give you a wonderful life. I think yes. we we don't do that enough. We don't respect the fact that kids are all unique and um, they have passions and interests that drive them and they ask the most wonderful questions. I love.
0: I love that. And Mary, it just made me think about my daughter. Um, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. she's in the other room sick at the moment. Her-
1: Five years, wow.
0: Oh, it it is just wonderful. And all of a sudden, um, I, I spent my career being uh, presenting information to parents as a school teacher, and now I am receiving information mm. from schools, which is a which is a lovely change. Um, but one of uh, my daughter Harper, one of her favourite things to do is to go into the city in Sydney and draw buildings. Um, she just loves. Yeah. She loves the Opera House. She loves That's the unusual. Yeah. yeah, and she's a. Um, and and as I was doing a bit of a deep dive in your work, it really made me. Um, it really made me think about that about the development of young people and how. Um, astute they are to spaces. I mean, she loves sitting on front of the Opera House steps, and we take a uh, packet of crayons and pencils and just draw the sails. And she loves that. And yes, there's there's something about spaces, isn't there, that really impact well, us? I don't
1: think it was for me, and it is for your daughter. But for other yeah. kids, it's quite different things.
0: I love that. Yeah. Um,
1: it's, it's the, you know, some kids have got an absolute passion for marine life. or Yeah. Um, Sport—it can be all sorts of things—but yeah. I think we need to, we need to nurture it.
0: Yeah, and and I think as well being present and aware enough to notice that. I mean, it would have been very easy to, um, to be busy and to be running mm-hmm. around doing your own thing and actually not to pick up on that. And so, um, yeah, I, I was just wondering, Mary, what are some of your uh, favorite spaces in the world and 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 why? Oh, there would be so many I'm sure
1: no not really I I haven't because of my obsession I I haven't traveled very wide widely and that's pretty much too late but um I think I, I'm not a city person I'm I'm much happier in nature that's where I get my my inspiration um but the the built environments that I've loved have been the old parts of big cities. Love that. Or yeah. um small cities. Well, particularly in Italy. I mean Italy is just full of them, which is probably why we keep going there. But also <laughs> I had the huge privilege of going to Iran a few years ago. Amazing. And there were some cities there. And the thing I I think I love about them is that they're organic. It's as it's as if they've they just um grown according to need and they're full of surprises you know but they look as if they're all of a piece what i don't like about cities is that every building is trying to outdo another one and it just for me it's just a messy jungle yeah, um, yeah. but i'm sure you could make a big organic city you know yeah i don't know i aware of any um and favorite building uh, well favorite interiors would be um well top of the box would be Ranchon. Cathedral by Luke which is, of course, unbelievable, um, Ms. van der Rohe's Barcelona pavilion, which would make a very excellent school. um, <laughs> things like that. Mm-hmm.
0: Amazing. And, and my understanding was that you were, um, uh, that, that one of your many major projects was furnishing the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, Talk to me about that project. What was that like? What were some of the considerations that you had to think about when undertaking such? I've been there many times and it's a wonderful space, but what were some of the considerations you had? to?
1: Matthew, once you get to my age, you realise that significant things that you thought were just wonderful at the time and and that would last forever can disappear. And all the work that we did on the uh, uh, gallery is all gone. But it was a wonderful project because I got to to get, get, put the brief together, and that meant interviewing all the curators and you know working, I with, understanding the collection, which is very really diverse, and the curators who were wonderfully interesting people. I love so, that. Yeah, it was it was a lovely project. But um, as I say, it's all gone.
0: It's all gone. Gosh, um, Mary, I was just wondering. Um, what is your life like now? I mean, it's been so vast. You've done a lot of amazing things, but what are what are the things now that consume the most of, uh, the most of your time?
1: Well, what I'm what I'm taken up with mostly now is, in a way, it's pulling my life's work together, and well, it's it's what I'm sort of calling visualizing, making organization visible. Right because so that's using um it's using all sorts of graphic techniques to to try and help people understand the elements of schooling um i mean to make a big leap that the work i've done in education has all been about progressive if you like education Yes. Which means radical transformation of what we had, what we've had for a very long time. Um, but to work in that way is complex and it's very different. And even when people are inclined to want to know more about it, it's, they can walk into a, a, an operating learning environment.
0: Yes. And,
1: um, and I said, "Well, I can see that you know it's it's the kids are being engaged. It's wonderful, but I, I I don't know what's going on." <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and it happened to me. One of the school I've worked with for a long time, and I went there, and there was a new team of three teachers in the prep area, and they were working in just the worst part of the school, and yet they transformed it. I love that was amazing. The three of them together had just, they'd been very clear about what they wanted to do. And I was there with somebody who was filming the program. And so I was there for a while observing. And I, even I couldn't understand the organization. Wow. So all I did was to um, to document it and to analyze it. And by that, I mean, I, I looked at the timetable, how they were using, how they were managing time, how they were grouping people, um, how they the curriculum content, how they were developing that, and that was a co-development between the awesome. teachers and the kids, and how they were managing space. Yeah. So I, I documented all of that, and I, then I showed it to the teachers, and they were amazed. They said, "Oh, that's what we're doing." <laughs> it was just because they were seeing it through a different lens. Yeah. They could do it. You know, they just knew what to do but yeah that's so really amazing explain it to somebody else it would be tricky even to make a film you know but to pull out the elements and the point is that if you analyze a traditional classroom it is uh th- this is usually shocks people when i because they know i have progressive ideas but I, it it is a very purposeful piece of design because it's absolutely designed around a set of values and yes. principles yes. which I think are totally outmoded but um, it says this is about the curriculum, it's about avoiding distractions, it's about focusing on the teacher and so you get an enclosed space, you know, one door, desks to separate the kids, teacher in the front, passive kids. But the the physical design is totally coherent. Wow. And it's totally coherent with that um philosophical approach, if you like. It's all it, and that's why I think it's so hard to make change because that setup is so familiar.
0: Yeah.
1: It's so coherent, as I say. Uh-huh.
0: I love that. Sorry, that's a rave. No, not at all, Mary. I mean, there's, 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 I have there's so many questions around that. I mean, that's, a, that's a podcast series, uh, in itself. I, I, I think that's really, um, I think that's really meaningful. And if I could just ask kind of one follow up question around that, um, what are some of the things that you think we need to consider when designing learning spaces? Because as you oh, mentioned, right. yeah, yeah, exactly right. But how do we I mean, you mentioned that that classrooms tend to be designed so the focus is on the teacher, so distraction is uh, reduced. How can we begin to um, uh, begin to design better spaces for classrooms for our students? Because I've had the privilege of working in a a variety of different schools, many of which were built in the '80s <laughs> and these kind of concrete blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, within that, I've seen some amazing uh, designs um, internally of classrooms. So, what are some of the things that we need to consider when designing? Amazing spaces. Look, for... I
1: think design comes right at the very end. I think the, the very first thing you have to consider is what is the educational philosophy? Mm. What is school for? I love that. What is school in society today, not 100 years ago, today? What is it? What is it to be human? What is it to be a child? What that. do we know about learning? We know a lot more about learning than we knew 100 years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then you, you form what you know what, is, what are the sound theories of learning? And yeah. we need to you know, that's that's really hard work that needs to be done. And then we need to say, okay, if that's what we believe, if we believe that um that children come into the world curious, competent, um all of that and if we say well we actually know that the way children learn is um in context that's the memorable learning in context we know they learn together it's learning is social it's emotional, mm-hmm. it's they need the opportunity to express their ideas and understandings
0: yes in all
1: sorts of ways, not just words or text, but in all sorts of other languages. Um, So taking all, you know, look, I could go on forever, but when you take all of that into account, then you design your pedagogical practice around all of that. Yeah. And then you say, okay, how are we going to to organise people to do this? Well, we need teams of teachers, not not a single teacher. It needs collaboration. If we believe in collaboration and everybody says, yeah, yeah, collaboration, then you've got to have adults collaborating. Children are going to see adults collaborate. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And we need adults and children. We need to bring the culture the, the culture of childhood, contemporary childhood together with adult. Yeah.
0: Culture.
1: That's valued, which is the curriculum, if you like. Yeah. yeah. You think of your five-year-old um in growing up in, in contemporary society, what is it that, that drives her? Um and yeah. how, how is that part of the the picture? Um That's and of course question. the thing is the future is absolutely unknowable. So how do we design these rich pedagogies and rich environments that that give all these possibilities mm. so that Children can thrive, so they can, do, so that they learn how to develop a community, how to, to be democratic citizens, yeah. how can they um, e- express themselves, pursue their interests, learn skills, all
0: of that. I love that. So, Mary, my understanding is that your um, philosophy has been really shaped by the uh, Reggio Emilia approach. I was just wondering um, if you'd be so kind as to unpack why that is so meaningful for you, and also what are some of the key principles for those that are not aware?
1: Yeah, it, it, it is really the most defining thing in my life, I would have to say, and I discovered it 30 years ago. Gosh. Um, but I think it's helpful to start by uh, looking at the origins of that project. So the interesting thing is that it is um, a whole system of schools, yes. you know, probably 80 schools, and they've been evolving slowly over decades and decades and they just get better they keep on asking you know how can we do it better
0: yeah i love that and
1: they're constantly looking at good you know helpful theoretical approaches um, looking at practice in other parts of the world learning learning and then they will they will try new ideas evaluate them absorb them if they think they're relevant and discard them if they're not Lovely. um so it's it's a very thoughtful process but the, the whole thing started at the end of the second world war when um there was a terrible civil war in that part of the north of italy and it divided families that was appalling and at the end of that a group of parents in Reggio Amiga said um what can we do to help uh avoid this in the future so that our children won't have to go through this trauma wow. and they decided that a school would be a good place to start um so they they scrounged bricks and things and started building but they didn't know what to do and they didn't you know how to build how to create the pedagogy but amazing man Loris Malaguzzi, who was um both uh, a trained psychologist and an educator became fascinated with what they were doing. Um, And he suggested that they they start by just observing children, not start with a curriculum, but start with observing children. And he suggested that um, that the teachers put a notebook in their pinafores. So they had a little notebook. And when they noticed something interesting, they would make a note, and then they'd get together and discuss it and how could they develop those ideas. Love so them. make a big jump forward you know, many decades. What they have developed I think is the most amazing invention and it's they call it progettizioni. So in essence it's long-term inquiry. Yeah. I we love yeah. So it's a process whereby the 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 sort of profound questions that children ask—you'll you know, know it with your daughter too—and um, the questions that the adults have about children and learning become the starting point for a research project. So right. the process is like, it's almost like a scientific research process. Yeah. So you start with a rich question, a really right. important question. Um, and then it gradually unfolds through discussions, through the children expressing their ideas in Amazing. Drawings, paintings, models, more discussions. It's an iterative, iterative process. And gradually the ideas deepen and deepen um the whole process is documented so that there's a record so that at the beginning of sessions of the people involved in it can see where they were up to at the last point in the project
0: gosh um, I love that I mean I would want to be uh not only a student but also a teacher in that environment Exactly, so refreshing.
1: Right. well that's lovely to hear yeah that's what I feel that if if um and I've worked with some amazing courageous uh, uh, educators in many different schools across all levels and when it's working it is so wonderful because the kids are being themselves you know they're 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 moving around they're they're doing all sorts of things they're engaged in good you know strong relationships with other kids with the adults the yeah. parents um i love that will come and and hear what the pro- the current project is and and these projects can go for weeks or months you know even a whole year um
0: and and i think as well uh, mary i mean it, it's also a change in mindset i think for the educators because we oh, we have huge. to, learn, we have to learn how to and
1: parents and parents.
0: yes how to let go i mean one of exactly. the things i am so proud of in my class and the classrooms that I had the privilege of leading is that we really try we have this thing quite that we say flattening the hierarchy like we want to make sure that um it's not the teacher at the front of the classroom who has all the answers because Google is way smarter than I am um I don't have all of the I don't have all of the answers to life I don't have all the knowledge um but what I get to do or what we get to do as educators is create the conditions for students to thrive yes. and students to inquire but that's scary especially if you've been teaching 30 or 40 years and 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 you sort of pride yourself on being able to control an environment but I think that raises so many important questions about um about how we actually train teachers about how we actually empower them to to take risks um I think it's so incredibly important but can you maybe spend a little bit of time unpacking what that experience was like for the teachers in those environments where it's worked really well do they? Do they light up? Are they excited to go to work? What's, uh, what's the experience like from a teacher's point of view, do you think?
1: Well, in my experience here, you know, in schools around Melbourne, Victoria, um, I have had the experience of working with teachers who are quite resistant. But, right. know, they don't want to work with other teachers, they don't, they think it's all too difficult. <laughs> But then I I vividly remember being in a staff room one day and a teacher burst through the door and her eyes were alight because she'd seen a child have an experience that was so meaningful to
0: her. Gosh, I love that.
1: So it transformed the kid, but it also was so meaningful for, for the teacher. But what I have to say, Matthew, is this: this is not something that teachers can do on their own. Yes. Unless you've got school leadership at the top that really believes in this way of working, forget it.
0: Yeah. They've
1: got to set the conditions because it's about really, it's about changing everything. It's about changing mindsets. It's about changing the way you use time. You have Love. to be much more flexible about the way you use time. You have to. Um, see the curriculum differently. You've still got to be a skilled teacher and know this, the basic skills that you want kids to learn. But but you're looking for the opportunity to do that in a meaningful context, an Love authoritative, that. meaningful context, because that's where it sticks. We know that all the research says that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's good. You can't do that. In, the other thing that's so critical, and that's why, of course, I've been involved, is what is the physical environment to support that way of working and that is very different to a single classroom yeah, so, yeah. Um, and I've done you know a couple of purpose-built buildings but mostly they've been low budget um refurbishments of you yeah. know of the old buildings uh, the most significant was probably one in Dandenong in Victoria which was yes. a little 1970s nasty Building <laughs> 45 different nationalities of kids in, uh, some from very, very disadvantaged backgrounds. But a fabulous principal and assistant principal, I'm still working with the assistant principal 20 years later, um I thought there's got to be a better way. I love doing. that. And, and they could fly under the radar because that perhaps because they were out in Dandenong or you know, they were yeah. able to do things. And, and so they asked me. We had a mutual interest in retro media. They asked me to. They'd already made a lot of pedagogical changes, but they and they'd also made some alterations to the building. But they felt it wasn't really supporting what they wanted to do. So yeah. we we launched on a, a another research project looking at um, what they wanted to do. You know in great detail we're a design brief so
0: yeah. we
1: worked with the children as well as the teachers and we we um we got the children to analyze what all the different experiences because they were already working in long-term okay. inquiry projects yeah and we ended up covering a wall with the different experiences um and i said to the kids well we can't have a room for every one of those but what The designer does is to rationalize that. So you put together the things, you know, things that need a wet, messy environment, things that need a quiet class environment. And we so we ended up um, with a dozen discrete settings. So these are, so what you end up with then is you bring together the real estate of a number of classrooms. In this case, it was four or five classrooms. You've got the team of teachers Mm -hmm. and you've got a large group of kids. And then we we created spaces within that large space to support this variety of experiences. The reason you need to do that is because these are unpredictable processes. They're very organic. So you might start with a discussion in a small, quiet area and then the teacher might say, well, would you like to express those ideas so the, the kids are hypothesizing about something. Hmm. So would, would you like to express that um, in drawing or painting? And, and so they oh. need to be able to immediately. It's not waiting for two o'clock on Friday for one <laughs> hour in a crappy art studio timetable. You know, like that's the I, that's that's what's
0: happening. I know. I I Mary, it, it's I, I think. Post-it notes and butcher's paper are some of the best inventions uh, that we have as educators. I remember once I was working in a uh, demountable, a cold 1970s demountable, and I was sick of the the space just didn't work. And so what I decided to do one day is cover all of the walls in butcher's paper uh, and use that as a a space where kids could write on the walls, could come up with ideas, could leave me post-it notes with suggestions, and it was a really great reminder that. uh, that we can actually create great spaces on a budget. We don't need millions of dollars to rebuild schools, even though that's lovely. But no, there are- but it
1: is more yeah. complicated. It it, it is Absolutely. one of the most complex areas of design I know. Absolutely. Uh, and I've done a lot of design, but this is complex. It says if you want kids to have quality experiences, yeah. then and and if you want them to to say draw and paint and model, yes. you need a space that has sinks. It yes. has wipeable surfaces, that has appropriate furniture, and all the resources, you know, loose stuff in that space, it ne- and it needs to be somewhat contained, and preferably it needs an orthomite. If you want kids to develop a sense of being a democratic, commu- uh, um, participant in a community, Correct. Yes. you need a space where that whole group can come together regularly, yes. And it might be 50, 75 kids coming together with the team of teachers. I love that. As a forum. And it may not last long, but it's important. But that space can also be used for um role play, for presentations, for music, dancing, film viewing. It's a very um, a very important space. In fact, it's interesting. I, I the last school I did. Was in fact a purpose built government school way out of town. And um, it's another whole discussion about. A
0: whole podcast episode.
1: <laughs> well, about government.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> current design brief. I mean, they want a bit of both. They want to hedge their bits by having spaces that can be used as classrooms, but also. But
0: not more- too much. Yeah, well, it doesn't
1: work. Really yeah. doesn't.
0: So, so, what was this experience like for you with the school that you were saying that you just designed? Work? Oh,
1: so one of the yeah. So it, it's being used in a pretty traditional way, but this room that I've just described—that's just carpeted with carpeted steps around the edge. I went to visit, and the principal showed us this room, and I said, "Oh, that's interesting," yeah. because usually when I Put that ends up full of desks and tables very quickly, but this one wasn't. And um, she said, Oh, no, we won't use that. But the architect I'd been working with said, Well, the reason they're not, you know, know, they haven't filled it up with furniture is because they haven't got their number of kids yet. But as it happens, another group of people went to look at the school some months later and commented that it still didn't have furniture in it. It was still a lovely open carpeted space. And the principal said, oh, no, we would never put furniture in there. The teachers have discovered how marvellous this space is. They've never had anything like it
0: before. Isn't that interesting?
1: Oh, look, it was music to my ears, you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But the Um, thing is that these spaces are always available. Yes. So you can have concurrent activities. You can have kids using them as they need to.
0: Yeah. And I think Mary, like, I I, and I wish I had like, look, I've had the privilege of working for gosh, close to sixteen years in both government and independent schools, and I wish I'd taken a photo of each of the classrooms that I had because every space for me, um, I have changed, I have adapted, I have asked my students what they want, and every couple of weeks we move things around. It's a very fluid space, and one of the things that I've um, noticed, which is really important about designing classrooms, is firstly creating an environment where students can move around i mean that sounds so uh, so trivial but for me making sure that there is uh, students can get up they can go from their table they can go to a word wall pull a word off they can find their answers and in our case they can scan qr codes and get directed to different websites and it's a real i have to be i have to think and be really intentional with the space that i'm in and also i love the fact that you're saying that we actually we actually have to ask our kids because they're the essentially they're the clients, but we never ask them what they want in a space. And I remember so many times kids being shocked that a teacher would ask their opinion about how they wanted their classroom. But um, yeah, well, I think it's yeah, yeah
1: that's absolutely right. We've got involved kids, but it's not that's only part of the picture. And I guess we do a lot of token sort of cons- consultation with you. We do, people. yes. I've seen that a lot. But the thing is to, to that it's an ongoing thing, I think. And that, um, as I say, it's it's it, this sort of rich pedagogy requires rich environments, mm. and that means um, it means thinking about services and finishes. It's yeah. not about flexibility. In fact, um, you know, I have arguments with a lot of my colleagues, and I say, Flexibility is the F word to me, it's not about adaptability maybe, but you can't create a good wet space or a good quiet meeting space or a good maker space even or a good gathering space without creating, if you like, the architectural space as well.
0: I love that. And um, would you mind, uh, Mary, maybe talking about the difference between um, flexibility and adaptability? Because I know that the word flexible is quite a—it's a common word that gets thrown around quite a bit. But what are what are you? How do you view the difference between those two terms?
1: I think if you look at the the buildings that the, the school buildings that are going up now so-called innovative learning environments i l e s what they've done is is to bring together the real estate of a number of classrooms into a neighborhood for a large group of kids and a team of teachers so you get a large space but it's often not very differentiated right and it's often furnished with just tables and chairs right so, what can you do in that space? Well, you can only do what you can do on tables and chairs, basically.
0: yeah, yeah.
1: but if you yeah. said no actually it the, the range of experiences that we want to have is much broader than that. So it's not enough to shift furniture. Around. That doesn't do it. You need the services as I say, and appropriate services the the appropriate enclosure. You know, some some activities need um total enclosure to 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 you know if you want a focused learning session or a meeting, you know, we all know you need it to be enclosed. But part of working in this way is also that uh, you want visibility. You want teachers to be able to move and be able to know where people are and what they're doing, and it's it it's it's helpful for them to know where their mate is and what they're doing. You know, it's part of feeling part of a community.
0: Love that. Um,
1: so, it's it needs it it does need clever design. So, the active space that I'm talking about really needs enclosure because you want people to be able to sing and dance, make noise, but you don't want that noise to interrupt. Uh, what's going on in the adjacent spaces. So you can do that now with large glazed sliding doors. So it's enclosed, but it's still visible. It's still part of that total environment. Yeah. I so think... that each space has its own very specific requirements.
0: Yeah. So is that what you mean with the term adaptability that we can actually change here? No, can... I, I call
1: that purposeful. Okay. Purposeful. Um, but the adaptability is, say, in the um, if you think of that large active space where you have the whole group coming together, you, that is adaptable um, by you know pulling the blinds down so that you create a dark space and having mm-hmm. a, a large section of white wall where you can project large images if you want to. Um, it can be more adaptable by having with some adjustable lighting in the ceiling. So you can create a dramatic space if you want to do a dramatic. Because these are not costly things, but um, they just extend the um, okay. the possibility of each, yeah. each area.
0: I, I think, um, thank you, Mary. That's such a um, a very clear um, a definition of the two terms, because I know that there will be teachers listening to this all over the world. Some will be in these wonderful New buildings. Some will be in these old, cold, demountables, and I love that um, it's actually not. Uh, it's actually about creating spaces that that are adaptable and actually being a bit intentional and that are
1: purposeful and intentional. That's another good yeah. word.
0: Yep. I think yep, that's really true.
1: So, and the thing that one of the things that design can do is, and it's very useful, is to provide cues for use.
0: Love that. So, so you it's... walk
1: into a space and you say, "Oh, well." This is where I can be, you know, I can run around and make a noise. This is where I can go and make a lot of mess. Love that. This is where I can go and have a really good um, discussion with yeah. the teacher. Work and, you know, all of that.
0: And, and I, th- I think that's so important. I was uh, speaking to a mutual friend of ours, Fiona Young, a little while ago, and she was talking about affordances in spaces. Mm. Um, and I'm assuming that's a, a similar thing where students are able to um, uh, take cues and interact with spaces differently. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah,
1: it brings enough up another um, element of, of all of this is that we need to consider the physical environment as layers. You know, that's helpful to think of um, like an onion, you know, an onion skin layer. So you've got the outer layer, which is the building, the shell, mm-hmm. which is pretty permanent. With, with its services. And then you've got um, inside that, you've got fixed fittings and furniture. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got movable things, which includes furniture, but it's also all the resources because to work in this way, you need a lot of different resources. It's not yeah. just yeah. the paper and pen or the laptop. It's a whole lot of resources. Yeah. Uh, one of the most important things is having a bulk store where you can keep the resources yeah. and the teachers can. I remember being in Reggio one day and the kids were working on a project and a, a child was looking at a beautiful book of photographs of trees, a bark, and um, he was looking at the bark of a birch tree. And the teacher noticed that he was looking at this. And she disappeared for just a couple of minutes and came back with a piece of real birch bark. Wow, that's that's a school that works.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. I love that the teacher had there was able to do that because it makes meaning. It makes the learning so much more interactive and meaningful. Well, it's
1: real. I and mean, this is the other thing we know about what how kids love to learn. It's experiential. Mm. There have been you know, wonderful surveys that have been done, of, you know, asking kids, yeah, what they would like in their ideal school. And it, you know, one of the things is, they want to do things; they want hands-on. Okay.
0: Yeah,
1: and they want more joined-up time, and they want better yeah. relationships with their teachers. I love that. that. Mm-hmm. And
0: Mary, how do you? Um, you strike me as someone who is um, endlessly curious. Um, how do you? maintain that because I think it's really easy. And I see that in people that have teach it been teaching as long as I have. It's very easy just to do what we've always done and to not change because it's easier. We're all creatures of habit. So how do you how do you stay curious and how do you stay um how do you keep asking questions throughout your career?
1: All kids come into the world curious. Yeah. And if you look at early childhood, you know the approach in early childhood has always been much more focused on the, the child and freedom and exploration and all, and, and experiential learning. Mm. So the thing that really shocked me when I, as a parent, moved from early childhood to school was, my God, what's happened? You know, did they think they're dealing with a different child here?
0: Yeah, wow.
1: It's like the child disappeared. Yeah. And the curriculum just swapped them. Wow. So it, it's about just, and that's what Rachel understands. That the, if you, as they say, if you start with that image of the child as competent and curious and say, that is what they are, that's their essence, you know, that, that's
0: what yeah. they come into the world. I love and
1: that. Generally, you know, encourage that, their grandparents, and, you know, they have all sorts of experiences of life that keep that curiosity alive and, and if they're lucky they develop a passion that, Love that people keep alive but we've got to we've just got to transform schooling we've got it we're all stuck you know because we all went to the same school the school that my grandchildren are going to is almost indistinguishable from the school I went to 70 years ago in English and you can see the same in remote villages in China, you know the same thing. We just got to break that. And, and, we and educational gurus, you know all of them are saying, and they've been saying it for a long time, we've got to radically transform education.
0: I love that. and and it's 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 too important not to do something because we are like the future is, literally in our hands. We, I have the privilege of standing in front of kids every single day, and and it, it never escapes me the the significance of what we get to do as educators. And, and even as I mentioned, my little one just started kindy this year. And so for me, it's that extra bit more personal, because I'm thinking about what kind of world is she going to inherit? As you said, we have no idea. But what we do know is we do know how we can best prepare them for the future and arguably we're not doing the best job that we can to do that. And so I think it's hugely important, Mary, the work that you're doing. um, And What could you
1: do, Matthew? Could you, as I've said, it it has to, I think parents are very resistant. I think we have to talk a lot more to parents about what the possibilities are. I agree. Because generally, I don't think parents know what goes on in the classroom. I don't, let alone, you know, what other possibilities there are. Of um, contemporary um, pedagogies, I don't think that I just don't think the information's out
0: there. Yeah, I agree. And
1: then, as I say, unless you've got school leadership that is committed to, because it's hard, they have to be. You know, at this time, if they if if they want to make a change, they've really got to be courageous because they'll be up against parents who resist, teachers who resist. I I believe what we're talking about is a holistic change a holistic approach absolutely so what has happened to date over the last 20 years has been ad hoc yeah so we say ah well it's not working you know we can do it better so what oh technology is the answer or stem is the answer or something else is you know it's just ad hoc whereas i believe that we have to we have to start, we have to build new foundations. Absolutely. And the new foundations have to be going right back to sort of, you know, the education philosophy um, and the principles and values. I agree. Build on that.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: And you end up with a lovely, you know, rich physical environment, but that comes at the end. What we've been doing is to throw up these buildings and then ask people to innovate in them. So,
0: it feels like we've got it around the wrong way. Um, and, and and I feel like we um we need to ask our students what they want, um because they are the people that will inhabit these spaces. And we need to have more consultation between staff, students, parents, policymakers, um and and, Actually, I think it's really important to be a little bit intentional about the spaces that we have and decide what is the the the, the purpose, what is the the function of these spaces. Um and yeah, because I think they're really important questions to ask because yeah, there's a lot at stake here.
1: But you could say in in 75% of schools, which are now traditional single classroom schools. Yes. yes. And they've mostly got specialist facilities, you know, art, art facilities, maybe PE, maybe music. But the problem is that they are timetable.
0: Mm, that's true.
1: So what that that cuts across what you can do. Yes. So they're intentional spaces, but they're not available. Yeah. Um, when they're when they needed. It. So it, that's why it has to be holistic because all of these things, absolutely, all of these elements of, of how you group people, how you use time, how you develop curriculum and yep. how you develop specific, all so closely linked together. So, yeah. Mm. Just as they are in a traditional school.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, Mary, I, um, I honestly could could speak to you for hours. Um, It's really difficult to encapsulate all of the amazing work that you've done and your contribution to um, not only design and architecture, but to education. And I'm so grateful that you would take the time to to speak with me today. Um, I just have one one final question, if you don't mind, before we uh, wrap up. And that's um, if we were sitting down uh, having a cup of tea at a cafe and I was just about to step into the classroom for the first time, Um, what advice would you give me about how I design my space for student learning?
1: Well, I would say start by observing the children. Yeah. By getting close to the children, even visiting their homes and seeing, um, getting to to know the, the rich diversity of children. And what drives them is the starting point. I think think that classroom, you know, it's got to move beyond single classrooms. And that means back to my question to you um, what moves would you make? Yeah. I'm asking you the question over a cup of tea. What (laughs) moves would you make um, if you wanted to make a transformative
0: change? I think that's a that's a huge question um I would um I would start by observing the students like you said um I would take time to to notice how they move to how to notice how they interact with the space um and I would also ask them what they want and give them that agency to to decide I think schools are too often decided by the people at the top um, and we forget that they're there as a service. To the young people. I that...
1: think it has to go to the top. It, has... it absolutely has to go to the top. Yeah. You have to go to your principal. And you have to question, you know, ask them, do you think we could do schooling better?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you think we are really responding to young people and what we know about learning? Yeah. What do we know about contemporary learning? And what do we know about children? Mostly, I think, you know, well, early childhood teachers know a lot about children, and they study early childhood, but teachers are much more focused on the curriculum than um, absolutely. absolutely and it's got to come together. But um, the question I'm asking you is the question I've asked myself every day, I think, for mm-hmm. decades. What is going to make the difference? Yeah. I thought it would be when people see the incredible outcome from children when they work in this way the work of the children in regional media is just stunning yeah and it's and it's their thoughts it's their you know the transcription of their ideas and the same in in some schools i've worked with here that it just blows adults away when they oh my god you know a child is six or seven had that insight that empathy that imagination yeah i thought that would make the difference yeah and I, I thought think... when the bratton institute comes out with a report that says 40 to 50 percent of kids are totally disengaged for most of the time i thought that would make the difference
0: gosh there's so much um mary we've, we've talked about so much today and it's been a um a real, honestly, a real treat to get to speak with you and to and to get to meet the person behind who has been so influential in so many areas. Um, And so I'm I'm hugely grateful that you would talk to me. Uh, We have by no means answered all of the questions. But I think what we've done is we've scratched the surface for people to go a little bit deeper. And um, for those people that would like to um, follow your work or find out more about you, um, where can people go to uh, to engage with you?
1: Well, there's a lot online there know, is a
0: lot i'll put all of that done. in the show notes for you there's all
1: sorts of things there yeah there are videos and
0: fantastic like
1: yeah but matthew i want to thank you because you know it's it's a marvelous opportunity to 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 talk to you and and um, listeners about well to see if we can get a collective movement yeah yeah going i would also suggest matthew that um more important than talking to me is to talk to my close colleague, Dr. Esme Capp, uh, that I've worked with for over 20 years in two different schools. Um, she did a PhD on the theoretical basis for this work, but she's also had the courage to actually practice it. In I love that. Two different schools. So uh, I think it'd be terrific if you spoke to her too.
0: Fantastic. I will. Um, uh... I'll reach out and uh, mention that you recommended her and I think that would be a wonderful um uh wonderful podcast episode. Uh, Mary, thank you for your time. Uh thank you. um it's been an absolute pleasure and hopefully at some point we can do a round two. Thank you so much.
1: Good to talk to you. Bye.